Pluto story, this story you may have already heard, uh, but I think it's worth repeating. And the story is about a rich uh, Canadian businessman goes down to Brazil and uh, he's on vacation, finds uh, a nice uh, fishing village, it's quaint, there's a beach, there's a pier, and him and his wife are, are uh, taking some vacation time there. And so one morning he finds himself fishing at the pier and uh, he sees uh, one of the local fishermen come in on his boat and he's uh, got a catch of fish, it's just one of a single small fishing boat. And he goes over and strikes up a conversation and asks him uh, about his catch and how long it takes to catch uh, the amount of fish that he, that he had there. He says, well, every morning I get up uh, early, I go out to sea, catch enough fish um, to feed my family, and I have a few extra left over to sell at the market and take care of all my needs. And, uh, and then the, the businessman says, well, what, what do you do for the rest of the day? Well, uh, like I say, I, I, I drop off some fish at the market, I go home, take care of a few um, uh, chores that are there, and then I get to spend time with my family, uh, my wife, my kids. Uh, have you been to the beach? Uh, we try to get down to the beach often, uh, relax there, uh, and then uh, in the evening I have time to um, spend time with my friends and, or just hang out with the family. And the businessman happens to be a professional consul business consultant. And he says to him, listen, I, I'm trained to uh, actually take small businesses and grow them into large businesses. And would you like to learn how to become a wealthy, a wealthy man? And I could show you how to do that. And so he, uh, the, the fisherman says, well, I, sure, um, that sounds good to me. Uh, wh what do I need to do? And the businessman explains to him, well, what you need to do is catch more fish. You need to increase your cash flow. That's going to happen by increasing the amount of fish. So you need to fish longer. It, it wasn't even noon yet. There was still the rest of the day in the evening. So if you could increase your catch by two or three times, you're going to increase your cash flow by two or three times. That gives you a surplus. You'll have profits, which you now can reinvest into your business. You can buy a new boat. You can employ other people. And uh, now your, uh, your cash, now you're, you'll, you'll have reserves. And eventually, you could perhaps even buy another boat, sell outside of the local market, and uh, increase your wealth. And the, the fisherman says, well, how long does that take? Uh, well, you know, it takes time. You have to build the business. Uh, it could take 15 to 20 years, but this is the best part. When you're done, you get to retire. And the fisherman says, well, what, what does that look like? Well, uh, it's the best part. And you uh, get to cash out at the end of this time. You get to take in all that money uh, that you've received. And now you can come down to the pier whenever you feel like it and fish. Uh, leisurely. You can go to the market and buy the things that you need and uh, well spend time with your family and perhaps you might even have grandchildren at that time and uh, hang out and the beach, you, you, I mean retirement is all about the beach. You can spend time at the beach and with your friends. Now the moral of the story doesn't escape us. We understand this moral and really what it's all about is to um, conflicting core values. And that's what I want to uh, look at this morning. These core values that although try to get us to 
a similar type of ending, they're uh, ingrained in two different ways, and those result in two different outcomes. And we see this conflict, this tension in the Bible, um, throughout the Bible, of course. We see uh, the proud versus um, those who are, uh, are humble, and we see those who are wise versus those who are foolish. And there's this constant tension between these uh, core values, because our, our outcomes are, are not what determine our life, our, our sort of plans and strategies. It's really our core values that uh, determine what we, um, what we do. And we know this. This is uh, the whole, the whole struggle with, uh, with good and evil, of course. But in James 3, and this is what I want to talk about, he talks about two opposing value systems that work against each other. I'll just hold on that, Mike. Um, and uh, he talks about these two value systems uh, that perhaps we don't talk about, and he talks about the two wisdoms, that there are two different types of wisdoms. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of wisdom, I think of it singularly, usually. We can see wisdom. We can hear it. When someone says something wise, we go, yeah, that's, that's really wisdom. It sounds different than knowledge. Uh, or someone has done something that was wise. Maybe someone, maybe you happen to buy stock with in, in, Apple stock 20 years ago. Um, you may go, well, that person was uh, quite wise. And so we look at it singularly. We don't look at it as, as two different types. But James says there are two wisdoms, and you must know what these two wisdoms are, and you must be able to identify them, or like the fishermen, you'll end up with two different ways of establishing your life. So, Mike, we'll look at uh, James 3 here now, and we'll read uh, what it says, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good conduct, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. Now, I don't know about you, but typically wisdom I listen for. I look for the outcome. James says, this wisdom, we're looking for good conduct. But if you harbor bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do you not boast in it or deny the truth? For such wisdom, this other wisdom, does not come from above. It's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's even demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every evil practice. And this morning, I don't want to look so much at earthly wisdom. We see that every day. I want to really look at how um, the Bible and how James and how Scripture defines and identifies and how we can recognize uh, godly wisdom. And here it is. But the wisdom from above, you ready, is first pure, then peace-loving, then gentle, then accommodating, then full of mercy, and good fruit, and impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap the fruit of righteousness. Now, if I was asked to kind of define wisdom or talk about godly wisdom, I'd probably say in terms of good judgment and wise words and good counsel and things like that. I wouldn't use a description like this. And yet James says, this is the very basis of wisdom. It's in character. 
It's defined by character. It's what you can see, what someone can show. And as I looked at this list and, uh, of these attributes, and I said, where, where have I seen this list before? And I ask you, where, where have we seen this list? Where have we seen these attributes? Now you may say, right on. That's exactly where I went. And I thought, there's the Beatitudes. The Sermon on the Mount describes this. And as James says, this is wisdom, I go to the Beatitudes and I go to the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, I look at what's going on here at, uh, at the Sermon on the Mount. And let's just step back and, and see what's happening, because typically we will um, study the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll just study the, the Beatitudes, and we'll, we'll look at them independently. We'll extract various things. The Sermon on the Mount is really a sermon of 30 sermonettes. And so to try to um, share all that in one time would be a challenge. But if we back up and try to get a, the big picture of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount happens early in the ministry of Christ. Really, uh, chapter 5 uh, of, uh, of the New Testament in Matthew. So prior to that, Jesus had spoken the temple, he had done miracles, he had attracted attention, but he really hadn't defined his ministry. And what's happening here uh, in, in uh, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is sharing his platform. He's gathered up his pe the people and uh, his disciples and, and, set, and has uh, initiated, this is what we're going to do. Okay, he has already got some gathering, he's already got his disciples, he's got a following of people, and they've been attracted, but now he's saying, okay, this is where we're going. This is what we're going to do to usher in the kingdom of God. This is what's going to happen. And so he speaks to his, we know that he's giving this message to his disciples, there's already a crowd of people, and he says to the disciples, just, um, we're going to go up to the mountainside, and I've got something important to say. So I want you to come with me up to the mountainside. We're going to review the Sermon on the Mount in context of God's wisdom, in context of this platform. Right now, we're going through municipal elections. And uh, if you were to go to one of these uh, town hall meetings or whatever and listen to a, uh, a, a, a potential candidate, they're going to lay down everything that they're going to do. What they st if you want to follow me, if you want to elect me, this is what I'm going to do. And this is what I'm going to do for you. And this is what I stand for. This is what I believe. This is what I, my, the very essence, my core values. And Christ is doing this uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. He's giving his platform. If you're going to follow me, this is where we're going. Now, it's interesting because if you, if you go to one of these uh, uh, municipal uh, town hall meetings, most politicians will tell you what they're going to do for you and how you will benefit. And does that sound a little bit like selfish ambition? The wisdom of this world? And the reason it's used is because it works. We like to hear what will benefit us. We like to, see, to hear and know what will make our life better. Uh, but Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount goes nowhere in that direction. In fact, he says, uh, what I'm going to tell you, or he doesn't say this, but we can determine from it, that the outcome here is what you will do for me and what you will do for one another and what it will cost you. Not the sort of thing 
that you lay down as a platform if you're trying to attract a following. So what he's doing is laying down the cost. So what I'm going to do here in the next few minutes um, is uh, perhaps uh, uh, we need a miracle in itself. Because what I want to do is share the weight of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, uh, which could have taken hours to preach, some say uh, perhaps even days. And I want to consolidate that down into perhaps five or six minutes. And uh, so the reason I, I want to do this is because typically when we read or follow the Sermon on the Mount, again, we split it all up. And so I want you to feel the weight. I want you to just relax. We've come to the mountainside. Sorry, if you're on Zoom, you can gather around the, your, uh, your uh, monitor. And uh, we're going to just listen. So I'm going to give it, of course, in point form. And uh, uh, because I want us to see this in context of this, uh, this is what we're going to do now. So you've never heard this before, and this is all new. Particularly, let's just review the first in um, the, uh, the Beatitudes. If we can just put that up, Mike. And we're going to look for those words that were shown in James 3 that define wisdom. And we're going to look if we can find that. Because the Beatitudes are, he's, he's giving two, the Sermon on the Mount breaks down into two sections, the Beatitudes where he defines this is the core uh, belief system, and then he explains this is what we're going to do. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for there they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, uh, for they will inherit the earth. Uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who, per who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I recall a story about a man who uh, was married to a Christian woman. And uh, because he was married to, the, and he wasn't a Christian, but because he was married to this Christian woman, he became familiar with uh, the tenets of Christianity, um, but made a decision not to become a Christian. And it's interesting, his reason for not becoming a Christian was because of the Beatitudes. He said... I can't do meek. I can't do gentle. It was outside of his understanding. Now, unfortunately, he didn't really understand what meekness means. He thought of it as weakness. But, and, and I, I regret that he made that decision. But at the same time, I have a certain amount of respect for that decision. Because he saw, unlike many of us, or many Christians, or that it's all or nothing. You can't select certain parts of Christianity and not partake in them. And so he made the decision not to become a Christian for this reason, because he misunderstood me, and I still believe we misunderstood this. We're going to look at this. But this is the very, very basis for which the, uh, uh, Jesus is going to mount his ministry on, these tenets which are the core values of God, I believe the very core wisdom of, that's from above.
So we're going to go through just quickly, just so you can feel the weight of, the, the, of this wisdom. I'm going to just touch on the various parts of the um, Sermon on the Mount. And uh, as we've gathered on the mountainside here, just, just sit and listen for a moment. You know these, you can fill in the parts. He goes into the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses, you are the salt of the earth. But if you lose its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? You are the light of the world. Don't hide what's been done. I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The bar is raised. He speaks of murder. And, he, and in through, through the uh, Sermon on the Mount, he, he'll often say, this is the way you know it to be, but now it's like this. And uh, he, he pronounces uh, a number of these scriptures, or a number of these words, starts that. So he says in, in uh, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, but you will not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to that judgment, even if you call him a fool. And he talks about adultery. You've heard what it was said. You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery. Talks about divorce and then oaths. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. They've never heard this before. Eye for an eye. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, uh, do not... Um, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to the left. Love your enemies. And you have heard that it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those. And by the way, and that's my inclusion, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You with me? Okay, this is where we're going. giving to the needy. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. You'll have your reward in heaven. And then he inserts the Lord's Prayer in here. Okay, and why has he inserted the Lord's Prayer? Because this is the way we used to pray. This is the way you used to pray, but this is the way we're going to pray now. It's this new dispensation. It's this new understanding. And so we know the Lord's Prayer, but that's how. And how does the Lord's Prayer start? Our Father, who art in heaven. Where's that humility? Where, does that come, James 3, Beatitudes? This is the wisdom of God. Fasting, when you fast, do not look somber. somber. Treasures in heaven. Do not store up for yourselves treasures in on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in, and, but store up your treasures in heaven. And no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one or love the other. And by the way, don't worry. Stop worrying. I tell you, do not worry about your life or what you will eat or drink or about your body. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of, of its own. And judgment, oh, 
do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? If you need something, ask, seek, and you shall receive. The narrow and wide gates. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Watch out for false prophets, for they will come to you in sheep's clothing. And not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of the Father. And then he concludes the Sermon on the Mount with a scripture and a story and a parable that we are super familiar with. And this parable and this story and this, this scripture often gets extracted out of context with what we have heard. And that's why I've wanted to read this. For he concludes by saying, and you may say, is this really wisdom? Is this really God's wisdom? And he concludes by saying, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like what? A wise person who built his house on the rock. And the rain came down, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fail, because it's had its foundation on the rock. Now, where is the foundation spoken of here? It, it's, it says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine. And what are the words that he just spoke? It's the Sermon on the Mount. This is the foundation. This is, by, this is what we build on. Jesus has laid out his strategic plan. This is where we're going. This is how we're going to do it. And if you're going to, if you're going to um, stand firm, it's on these words that we... Now, it's interesting because the gospel had not been preached yet. And typically when this is spoken of, we insert the gospel into it. And I believe that the gospel is part of the wisdom of God, and yet it's to come. After you've heard these words, you go, this is impossible. And we're going to live our found we're going to foundation on it. And yet to come, Jesus is going to give that ability through the death and resurrection of Christ. So this is where we're going. This is how we're going to do it. So in the future, God will give us the Holy Spirit. But in this case, he's just laying the foundation and the footing of uh, where he's going. So we believe that this is, this is the true wisdom. And James warns us earlier in the, uh, just before uh, he talks about the two different wisdoms, he talks about two other uh, conflicting items that we have to, he, he actually gives a sort of warning. And then he says, uh, watch out which wisdom you use. And he says in verse 11, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring. My brothers, can a fig tree grow olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. And there's a warning not to contaminate the spring. I live in Clarksburg, and um, on the other side of the river, we don't get city water. We all have wells. And so we have to watch uh, our water. And be careful it doesn't become contaminated. Now, in rural and even in the urban area, 
one of the chief contaminants is salt put on roads. And the salt, over years, uh, seeps its way down into the aquifer and contaminates uh, the water. Most uh, wells that are near a roadside will show some degree of salt contamination. And uh, once it's in there, you can't get it out. And, J and James is warning, careful that you don't get your wells contaminated. Now, typically, when we think of the church historically, when we think of being contaminated, we think of keeping ourselves from the world or worldliness and uh, don't get tainted by the world. And so the church has historically pulled itself away. And that's not what's being told here. In fact, Jesus said, you know, go into all the world. Go into all the world. And, and, and he associated with everyone, from the worst to the best. But, he say, but we're being warned of what we drink. Now, I love to swim in Georgian Bay. And some days it's really clear and clean, and some days it's got some particulate in it. And I don't mind immersing myself right in the water, but I'm not going to open my mouth and drink that. And so we need to be careful with wisdom if we don't define it separately. If we can't identify the worldly wisdom from the uh, godly wisdom, then we will drink from a well and contaminate ourselves and not even know it. So on our well at home, we have filters. And those filters uh, take the contaminants out prior to us drinking the water. So we always have clean water. But without those filters, um, we just drink out water, and there could be salt in it, and what do I know? And so we had the water tested, and we know what's in the water. We've added those filters. So what filters do we have in our life? If I don't have a filter, if I don't filter what I listen to, if I don't filter what I listen to on the internet, if I don't filter what I listen to uh, from others who are around me, if I don't use a filter at all, how do I know that those contaminants aren't getting through? The core to this is the wisdom that has been given to us in the Sermon on the Mount being able to identify and define this true wisdom. So when you hear someone speak, if you hear uh, an interesting conversation, if you hear something that sounds like truth, something that looks like wisdom, hold up the Sermon on the Mount to that. Hold up the Beatitudes. Am I hearing something that I like, but the person doesn't have this character? They're not meek, they're not gentle. Should I, should I listen to them? So we need those filters. And we need to put those filters in our life. And so I would encourage you this week or in the weeks to come to review the Beatitudes. Review what you're listening to. Review those sites that you go to. And say, is this, cons is this consistent with um, what I'm seeing here? Now be careful, because what I'm hearing now is that the church is under such uh, threat right now, and we see it. Uh, the church is threatened. We're seeing people leaving the church. We're seeing the church being attacked. Those things that we have considered sacred are being questioned in such a way like never before. And because that there is such a threat that perhaps the Beatitudes have to be put aside for now. That certain conditions require that we need to take up 
different weapons. And there's no such exemption that I see here. There's no such consideration. I mean, even Jesus said, we're going to be persecuted. They're going to call all kinds of evil things against you. There's going to be, a, there's going to be an attack on us. And he, and he said, that's part of the wisdom. It's included. So sometimes we misunderstand this tension, this fight, this battle, and there's those who take on a form that we're just going to be meek and let, you know, let a, just whatever happens, happens, and that's what is described as, as sort of meekness. And we kind of take on that, that weakness role. And I want to look at the story of, of David and Goliath just for a moment. We know the story. And I think it exemplifies the two wisdoms. For here we see the Goliath, a boastful man, strong, courageous. He has self-confidence. He has a history of winning battles. This is the man you want. He has defeated so many that he has created fear amongst his enemies. And that fear was certainly apparent. Uh, in Israel, as they were meant to, uh, as they were confronting this giant. They knew what they were up against, and they couldn't find anyone who would do it because they knew what would happen. Even with the, with the armor and with the weapons they had. And so in, in, in comes David, and uh, we are often, spo- it's often spoken of this in this story and in this context as David being this super courageous person. And I don't want to put that down. I believe he was courageous. But there's another part of this, that he was just willing to take a stand and, um, and, and fight this battle, but not with the weapons that were given to him. Because they were told, and the king said, here, take these weapons of mine and fight this. this. You'll need this. And he said, no, those aren't the weapons. I can't use those weapons. And he knew they wouldn't work. They would just hold him down. They would just weigh him down. And when we take up the weapons of the world, and when we take up the wisdom of the world and try to use it, fight fire with fire, it weighs us down. David knew this. He said, I'll have nothing to do with it. I thought, whenever I read this story, I thought, well, David, just, just put on the shield. Just do something. I mean, it's there. It can't hurt. But he knew it would hurt. And so he goes out, not with the confidence of, uh, that uh, Goliath had. He didn't come with the self and the blustery. He came in with a humility and a meekness, and yet at the same time, great courage to stand. And so it shows this, it exemplifies this uh, meekness um, that we see in Scripture, that he came and he said, God's going to bat- fight this battle. And as we read in the New Testament, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. Be careful of the weapons we take up. And Jesus, of course, fully exemplifies this by going to the cross. Recall when in the the Garden of Gethsemane, the um, soldiers are coming to take Jesus away, and uh, they arm wrestle him, and they gather, and they get him, and the disciple comes, and what does he do? He pulls the sword and strikes the soldier with the weapons of this world. And what does Jesus say? 
put the sword down. That's not how we battle. That's not how we fight. Heals the soldier and goes to the cross. What appears as foolishness. Come down from the cross, they said, if you're the son of God. And yet he had a bigger plan. The wisdom of God was going to take him to the cross because he knew that without that, the wisdom, we could never do this. It would just be the law again. We'd be replacing the old law with a new law, a higher law that's, I mean, the old law was hard enough, but now there's this be perfect law. And that would only happen by him going to the cross and by giving us the Holy Spirit so that we could fulfill this. And so he said, if you want to follow me, if you want to follow me, do the same. Take up your cross and follow me. Let's pray. I'm going to thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our example. That you didn't just point the way, uh, but that you showed us the way. And so we come before you and uh, uh, thank you that you have given us these instructions. We thank you that you have given us your wisdom. And we thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit. And as we enter a new sort of era, as the church is coming under attack, as we feel threatened, that we may uh, be wise and we pray for wisdom for the church. We pray for the wisdom for each one of us. That as we independently face these battles that we would know how to respond. And as a church uh, locally, we would know how to respond. And as a large church, that we would have this understanding. And so be the light of the world as you've told us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.